Thank you for checking out the messages of New Grace. We are a group of believers in Roanoke, Virginia, who are dedicated to loving God, loving others, and serving others. We hope that today's message is a blessing to you and your family. <clears throat> Life uh, is full of decisions. We, we all have to make decisions multiple times a day, sometimes hundreds of times a day, and sometimes they're pretty insignificant decisions, what you're going to eat for breakfast, what route you're going to go to for work. Sometimes they're, they're pretty important decisions. As a matter of fact, you've, you've already made several decisions today. Now, these decisions may have been made for you, but they were a decision that was made nonetheless. You decided to get up this morning instead of staying in bed and sleeping. I'm not sure that was a great decision. Uh, I made it too. I would have rather stayed in bed and sleeping, but you made a decision to get up. You made a decision to get dressed instead of coming out in your pajamas. Good decision for most of you. You decided to come to church to worship God with his children instead of watching online or doing something else. And you're going to make decisions after today. You're going to decide where you're going to eat for lunch, what you're going to eat for lunch. Are you going to go out as a family? Are you going to go home by yourself? What are you going to do for lunch this afternoon? And there's going to be a million other decisions that you have to make without even really thinking about it. Now, some decisions that we make, they are made for us because we refuse to make a decision. We refuse to decide to do something and go forward. For instance, deciding to save money. You can debate about whether you're going to save money or not and talk about whether deciding to save money or not, but if you don't actually make a decision that you're going to save money and move forward with your plan to save money, you're not going to save money. You're going to spend the rest of your life talking about it and trying to decide it, but by refusing to make a decision, the decision was made for you. Maybe it's deciding to remove toxic people from your life, people who are destructive to you and your relationship with other people. And you talk about it and people tell you you need to do it and you contemplate, are you going to make the decision and get rid of these people and cut them out of your life once and for all? And by refusing to actually make the decision, the decision is made for you and those people stay in your life and end up causing trouble or destroying you. A philosopher, William James, said this. He goes, when you have to make a choice and you don't make it, that is in itself a choice. In 1 Kings, Israel is at a point in their history where they have to make a decision concerning their relationship with God, concerning their worship of God. And Elisha, he's, he's going to confront them and he's going to say, you have to make a decision. If God is your God, then you have to decide to serve him and worship him and be faithful to him. If these false gods are your God, then you have to make a decision to be faithful to them and serve them. But by refusing to decide either way, you are being unfaithful to God and you are choosing to forsake God. Now, Israel, they didn't feel that they had forsaken God. They still worshiped him. They still read the Bible. They still went through the, uh, the practices and the rites and the rituals. So they didn't feel like they had forsaken God. 
they had just added other gods to their worship. So while they still worshiped God, they just worshiped other gods as well. They hadn't rejected him, but they hadn't chosen him either. That's where a lot of people today are in their walk with God. Maybe that's where you are today. I know even as a pastor, I've been in situations like this where I'm kind of waffling between faithful to God and serving God completely or serving other things and worshiping other things. And so maybe you're there where you haven't forsaken God, but you're not fully committed to God either. You haven't rejected him because you're here today. You're in church. You made the decision or the decision was made for you, but you came willingly, even begrudgingly, you came willingly. You came to church. You sang praises to God. You're listening to someone preach about God. And so you haven't fully rejected God, but you haven't fully committed to him either. In Elisha's time, Israel had been on a downward spiral of worshiping other gods besides Jehovah. And that included the king Ahab. And we saw for the last couple weeks how Ahab has become to be known as the most wicked king in the northern kingdom. But Ahab wasn't all bad. He wasn't all terrible. He had some good qualities about him. He did believe in God. He did believe in Jehovah. He did worship him. He just worshiped these other gods as well. And so he even, he even uh, gave his kids God-honoring names. And in those days, that was a big deal. The name you gave your child said a lot about you and what you expected of your child. And so for him to give his children God-honoring names declared to the world that he believed in Jehovah. His one name, he named one son Ahaziah, which means owned by Jehovah, and Jehoram, which means Jehovah is exalted. So on one hand, he, he appeared to be a follower of God. He appeared to believe in God and the one God of Israel and serve him. But on the other hand, his wife Jezebel was a wicked pagan worshiper. She was a devout follower of Baal. And she hated anything that had to do with the God of Israel. She hated him so much that when she became queen, she killed thousands of the priests and prophets of God and replaced them with the prophets of Baal. And Ahab did nothing to stop her. She was determined to make Baal worship the official religion of Israel. And Ahab, though he believed in God, Though he served God, though he gave his kids God-honoring names, he did nothing to stop them. Because of that, God raises up Elijah. Elijah is sent there to show Israel that there is only one true God, his name is Jehovah, and to bring them back to worship of him alone. The entire point of Elisha's life and his ministry is to show how the God of Israel is vastly different and superior to all the false gods that the people had worshipped at the time. And so this morning, we're going to look at the, the event that is the focus 
of Elisha's life and his ministry. And that's the, the conflict between him and the false prophets on Mount Carmel. Everything that has happened in Elisha's life that we've looked at up to this point has been preparing him for this battle. To show him God's power and God's provision for him so that he could have the faith to stand up and face these false prophets and face these false gods once and for all. To prove that there is only one God and his name is Jehovah. But this isn't a battle between God and Baal. This is a battle between God and every false idol and every false god in the world. Because remember, there was more than just one Baal. There were thousands of Baals. The word Baal just means Lord. And each Baal was in charge of a different realm of responsibility. There was a, a Baal of sex, a Baal of success, a Baal of fertility, a Baal of power, a Baal of protection and provision. And look, it's real easy for us to look at these people and look down on them as silly idol worshipers, having all these false gods. You know, it's kind of like Hinduism today where they have hundreds. It's very hard to witness to them and to win them to Christ truly because they look at Jesus as just another god to worship. They have thousands of gods they worship for all kinds of different things. It's easy for us. They have, you know, idols of them. And it's easy for us to look at people like that and think, how can they, how can they be so silly? Worshiping these false idols that they expect to give them happiness in these particular areas. But we have the exact same idols and false gods in our life. And we worship them just as faithfully. We don't worship them at an altar but we worship them with our life. We serve them with our life. We worship sex and prosperity and family and power and protection. The, but the, at least the people in, in Elisha's day, they understood there was a spiritual component to it. They understood that giving their worship to these false gods and these Baals would, would harm or diminish their relationship with God. They saw the spiritual aspect of it. We don't see any problem with it. We think it's just life as it is today. All humans are worshipers. We were created to worship so every human who's ever lived, who's ever, who's alive today, have things that we assign ultimate worth to. We have something that defines us. Something that we believe we cannot be happy without. Something that life isn't worth living without that thing. Even people who we wouldn't call religious. They have something that gives their life value. Something that gives their life point, a point and a purpose. They have something that makes life worth living and they worship that thing. They have to have it. Again, they're not worshiping it like idol worshipers do, but they're worshiping it with their life, with assigning value to it. An idol is something that has taken ultimate worth in your life. Something that you couldn't imagine going through life without it. And your thing, whatever it is, instead of God, that thing becomes your source of security. 
your source of fulfillment, your source of identity, your source of joy. And, you know, an idol usually isn't a bad thing. It's usually not a wicked thing. It's usually a, a good thing that we allow to take control of our life and it becomes a bad thing because it replaces God in our life. In our culture, most people's idol is money. It's the primary source of security and joy. You have enough money, then you're secure in your, your life. You're going to make sure your bills are paid. You're going to make sure there's food on the table. you got a roof over your head. You can buy the things that make you happy. You can give to make other people happy. You have joy when you have it. But then if you don't have it, if you, you miss, maybe you, get late, you lose your job or the stock market tanks and you lose your money, all of a sudden you're nerfed. Well, how am I going to pay the bills? I don't have any money anymore. How am I going to find happiness? I don't have any money anymore. That's the primary God and idol in our culture, and there's, there's nothing wrong with money. But when it becomes an idol, it becomes a thing that you have to have at all costs. It becomes a thing you worry about all the time. It becomes a thing that you obsess over all the time. You disobey God and your tithes and offerings so you can have more of it. You are dishonest with people or... In, people or the government so you can get more of it. For, for other people, maybe your family is your idol. You can't imagine being happy in life with, without your perfect family structure. You have everything set up where your family looks the part and acts the part. And maybe you, you want your kids when they grow up to live exactly, you know, real close to you and your family has to be the perfect Instagram family. And you put so much weight on your family. So much weight on looking right and acting right and having everybody think so highly of your family. You put so much weight on it that when things don't go the way you expect them to go, you're unhappy and you're bitter. You're bitter because you don't have the image of the family that you thought you would have or that you think you deserve. Or you're bitter because of the way your family treats you. For some of you, your identity is wrapped up in your accomplishments. If people aren't praising you for what you do and how great you do it, then you don't know who you are. Your identity isn't found in being a child of God. It is found in being admired and praised by other people for what you do. These are all things that people in our culture worship. But there are hundreds of false gods in our hearts. There are hundreds of of false gods in our culture, just like in Elisha's day. You know, John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. We are constantly pumping out new things to worship over God. You know, we may have as many bales in our heart as Israel had in their temple. So when we look at this battle today, I don't want you to think that this battle is irrelevant to you. This battle doesn't apply to you because you're not worshiping false gods like they do. You don't have false idols you go to and you make sacrifice to and you worship and pray to. You don't have those false gods, so this doesn't apply to you. This battle describes the battle for your heart. In chapter 18 of 1 Kings, it begins with a, a pretty humorous exchange between Elisha and the governor of the region, Obadiah. Obadiah is a believer. 
He, be, he believes in God. He serves God. He worships God. He's faithful to God. But he's also a governor of Ahab's, and so he's kind of got to, you know, keep Ahab happy. And one day him and Ahab comes to Obadiah and says, we're going to go out and we're going to find some grass to graze our animals because we want to keep the few horses and mules we have alive. We want to keep them alive. So let's go look for some grassland that hasn't died yet so that we don't lose every animal we have. So they head out in different directions and Obadiah goes one way and Ahab goes another. And as Obadiah is looking for grazing land for the few animals left, he runs into Elijah. And Elijah says, hey, Obadiah, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go find Ahab and tell Ahab I'm looking for him. Tell Ahab I'm right here and he needs to come and see me. And Obadiah says, uh, no, I'm not doing that. Because when you said it wasn't going to rain until you said so, Ahab got really mad and made us all look for you and God hid you. And we looked all over the country for you. We couldn't find you. People were killed because they couldn't find you. Ahab got really mad. We had to swear we couldn't find you because God was hiding you. Now, I'm going to go back to Ahab and say, hey, guess what? I found Elisha. We're going to come here and God's going to have hidden you again and then I'm dead. And so Elisha kind of pinky swears it'll be there. And so Obadiah goes to Ahab, says, hey, Elijah was here. He said he'd still be there. If he's not, it's not my fault. So don't blame me, but let's go find Elisha. So they go and Elisha and Ahab meet. And here's what happens. And when they meet in 1 Kings 18, starting verse number 17, the Bible says, and it came to pass when Ahab saw Elisha, that Ahab said unto him, art thou he that troubleth Israel. The word troubleth there in the Hebrew means one who wrecks havoc or brings a pestilence or a plague. This is the word that the Jews used to describe when God would send judgment on them for forsaking God. When God would send the snakes into the camp with Moses and they, the serpents would bite them and they would die unless they turned to the, the stake that was raised up. That's the word they use for troubleth when God would send a plague to them as punishment. That was this word. And so when Ahab sees Elisha, he goes, hey, you're the guy causing all the problems. You're the guy causing trouble in Israel. Look at how Elijah responds in verse 18. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou, thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and that thou hast followed Balaam. So they meet, and Ahab says, you're the one causing all the problems. And Elijah says, it ain't me, it's you. You're the one causing trouble. So who's the one causing all the problems? Who's the one that is bringing the pestilence and the pain onto the nation of Israel? It's easy to say, well, it's Elisha because he's the one that said, it's not going to rain till I say so. And then he went and ran away and hid and it hadn't rained. People are dying. So it's Elisha's fault. But Elisha's not the one that stopped the rain. It was God. And God did it because of what Ahab and Israel were doing. God sent the pain to bring Israel back to them, and Elisha was just the guy who was telling them what was happening. He was the man God was using to speak truth into their life and show them where they were wrong. Sometimes God's put, God puts people in our lives to do the exact same thing. Not to bring pain to us or to bring hurt to us, but to show us 
where we're wrong, to show us where the pain we're facing is coming from God to teach us a lesson. They are trying to warn you about the dangers of the road you are on. And like Ahab is with Elijah, you are hating them for it. God put them in your life to show you something. And because you don't like what they're saying, you're angry at them. You're bitter at them. You're, hate, you're trying to find fault in their life. Something wrong with them that they have in their life. That they, but the truth is they have been put there by God to show you what's wrong. Maybe it isn't that person causing pain in your life, but it's you that's causing pain and they're just pointing it out. That's how pain works in the physical body. Pain is a warning that something is wrong. You put your hand on a hot stove, the pain tells you to take it away before something worse happens. There's a disease, it's called congenital insensitivity. It's where you don't feel pain. That sounds great, but pain is a warning. Pain tells you something's wrong. And so if you feel no pain, you can be getting hurt by something. You can be sick and have a disease that needs to be dealt with. You can have an infection. But because you feel no pain, you don't know it, and it gets worse, and it eventually kills you. Pain tells you there's a problem. That's what, that's what makes leprosy so bad. You know, leprosy, it attacks the body, but first it attacks the nerves. So you don't feel it destroying the body. It eventually eats away your fingers or your face or your nose. It eats slowly, destroys your body, but because it's already destroyed the nerves, you don't feel it. And so oftentimes you can have it until it's obvious. You don't know that you have it. And leprosy is a picture of sin in the Bible. It is the ultimate outcome that, of sin where you allow yourself to sin so much that eventually you stop feeling the pain of it, you stop feeling the guilt of it, and Paul says you end up with a seared conscience where sin no longer bothers you. And Elisha has been put in Israel's life to warn them before they get to that point. And sometimes God puts people in your life to warn you before you get to that point. You may not like what they say, but God has put them there for a purpose. But let's keep reading. Look at verse number 19. <clears throat> now therefore, send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. That's a pretty big table, first of all. You're seating, you know, 850 people. That's a huge table. The Eccleston's table's not even that big. So uh, Jezebel's table, so Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elisha came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. The word halt there literally means to limp or to be lame. They were not fully committed to God, and they were not 
fully committed to Baal. And so they are limping between these two worships and they're not being effective in any direction. Their, their worship had become lame, had become worthless, had become ineffective. They refused to make a decision between the two, but there are things where you have to make a decision and if you don't make a decision, the decision is made for you. To not decide if you're going to serve God or serve something else leaves you limping along in life. Elisha says, look, if Baal's your God, if you're going to spend so much energy and time worshiping him, then worship him completely. Don't waffle between him and God. Serve Baal completely or serve God completely. You know, it's the same thing that Joseph said when they were about to cross the Jordan River. When he says, you know, you can serve the gods in Egypt and the gods in the... You can serve the gods of the wilderness, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve God. We're not going to serve both one or the, one or the other. We're going we're to make a decision and we're going to stick to it. It's what Jesus says when he says, you can't serve two masters. You can either serve mammon or God. You can't serve both. So if money, here's what Elijah's saying. If money's your God, serve it with all your heart. Get all you can get. Cheat if you have to. Steal to get it. Hurt people to get it. If that's your God, serve it completely. Hurt people, sacrifice your integrity, neglect your family, but worship that God completely. You know, what bothers me when there are Christians who say they worship God and they serve God and they want to love God, but then they, they can't, they don't obey him in every aspect of, of, of their lives. Oh, I'm going to say, I love God. He's my God. I'm going to serve him completely. But in this, off, in this area of tithes and offerings, they're, they're not going to completely obey him. They prioritize money in every decision. You know, there are people who make sure their kids are in every correct extracurricular activity, no matter how it affects their attendance and faithfulness to church, but they're going to be in the right activities so they can get in the right schools and get the right education and make the right amount of money when they grow up. Who cares if they grow up loving God or serving God or even knowing God? We've got to make sure they do this right. And Elijah's saying, hey, if that's your God, go for it. Serve it. Give it everything you've got. But stop acting like you love God. Stop acting like you want to be a Christian too. If approval of people is your God, then please that God. Do whatever you have to do to earn the approval of everyone. If relationships are your God then go anywhere and do anything you have to do so you can have the right relationship and feel the way you desire to feel. Hurt whoever you have to so you can get the relationship you want. Look, if you think your spouse is in the right relationship, you deserve another one and that's your God, fine. Get rid of your spouse and go serve them. Who cares what your kids say? If that's your God, serve your God. That's what Elisha's saying. Pick what you're going to do. If pleasure's your God, serve that God. Make all your desires happen. Make yourself happy. Please yourself at all costs. But if Christ is your God, if Jesus is the one true God, then serve him with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, and all your soul. Give everything of yourself to him.
I just says, how long are you going to go limping along between two, two different decisions? How long are you going to live a lame, sick, ineffective life? You can't be a little in the world and a little in God. You end up being enough in the world that you're miserable in God and enough in the world and in, in God that you're miserable in the world. Choose one way and go after it. You know, Matt Chandler said this. He says, church has to be the lamest hobby in the universe. You get up every weekend, come to a crowded place where you have to walk to an auditorium and sit with a bunch of people you wouldn't hang out with otherwise and be pressured to volunteer and be made to feel guilty by some guy who yells at you for 45 minutes. That's a terrible hobby. He says, get a boat, climb a mountain, ski, find any other hobby besides church because church was never intended to be a hobby. Why put on the Christian mask and play a part every Sunday? If you don't fully love Jesus, why waste a good weekend? Go all the way or don't go at all. Either be faithful and volunteer and give generously and go to growth groups or share your faith or do nothing. Now, I'm not saying we should all go out and get a boat and skip church. I see David's getting up now. He's like, all right, amen, preach it. I feel you. Saying we should all commit to God completely. Because even if you did that, even if you said, preacher said it's okay, I'm not going to fully commit, I can do what I want to do, I'm going fishing. I'm going, I'm going to sleep. I'm going to read a book. I'm going to go on back. I'm going to do whatever. He says, I wasn't fully committed. Give it all up. As a believer, you will never find true joy. Your idols, your gods, even if you completely commit to them, will never satisfy you. Will never bring you joy. You will live a pointless, miserable life always looking for something to satisfy when the only thing that will satisfy is walking with Christ. That's it for the believer. That's the only thing we can do. Christian joy comes from serving and witnessing and giving and sharing your faith and growing your faith in others and fellowshipping with believers. And none of those things that we serve besides God will bring joy to us. And none of those things that we're supposed to do, fellowshipping and witnessing and serving and giving, none of those things will bring joy to the half-hearted believer. So he says, how long are you going to limp along between two opinions? Choose one. Elijah, he throws the question out to the crowd and no one answers him. It's like he was hosting a growth group. He asks this question and no one answers. So he asks this question, nobody answers him. And so he offers a challenge. Look at verse number 22. This said Elisha unto the people, I, even I only, remain the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks and let them choose one bullock for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on wood and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock and lay it on wood and put no fire under and call ye on the name of your gods. And I will call on the name of the Lord and the God that answereth by fire. Let him be God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. 
And Elisha said unto the prophets of Baal, Choose you one bullock for yourselves, and dress it first, for ye are many, and call upon the name of your gods, and put no fire under. And they took the bullock, which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elisha mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is in a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awakened. Look, the, the false prophets, i got to give Elijah some, some props here. He's kind of brave. He's one guy picking on 450 prophets who they have knives because they're cutting each other. But he's pretty brave. But these false prophets, they, they try to get Baal to do something and nothing happens, obviously. Elisha begins to mock him, make fun of him. And look at how he mocks him. It's really interesting what he says. It says, and he came to pass at noon. Elisha said unto them, cry aloud, for he is either talking. Now, in the, the Hebrew here, the word talking means daydreaming. He's like, maybe he's not paying attention. He's just daydreaming or something. Then he says, or pursuing, pursue, this is the funny one, in my opinion. Pursuing means to go to a private place. It was a Hebrew euphemism for using the bathroom. It's like, maybe he's daydreaming. Maybe he's on the potty. We don't know what's going on. He says, maybe he's uh, on a journey. That means on a vacation. Maybe he took a vacation. Maybe he's napping. Maybe he's, you know, he's mocking them pretty hard, but they don't think it's real funny. Look what happens in verse number 28. <laughs> and they cried aloud and cut themselves uh, after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was passed and they, prom and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. So for hours they're yelling, they're shouting, they're dancing, they're jumping up and down on the altar, they're cutting themselves. They're doing everything they can think of to get Baal to pay attention and show up and do something, but nothing happens. Now, this story, and we're going to get to the rest of it, but this story, it shows us the difference between God and the false idols we have in our lives. So here's the first thing we're going to notice. Number one, let's look at the characteristics of the false gods. First characteristics is false gods accept us through our efforts to please them. If you obey enough, if you do enough, if you give enough then they will accept you. You know, religious false gods, they require absolute obedience and absolute commitment or they threaten to punish you. But secular false gods, the ones that we worship, they're the same way. If you succeed enough, then you'll have joy. If you get enough money, you'll have joy. If you buy enough stuff, you'll have joy. If you get enough friends, you'll have joy. You get enough popularity, you have joy. You've got to constantly work and serve because when you get what you think is enough, you have to have more. Because I, I got what I thought I had. It's, it's not enough. I need something more. I got my hunting cabin. It's not enough. I need a boat. I got my boat. That's not enough. I need, I need a bigger one, a faster one. I need, I need more. I need more stuff, more this, more that. I got to have a ski-do. I got to have all this stuff. Is there anything wrong with them? No. But when that's our focus, that's our goal, that's our desire, 
It's never enough. And we have to constantly be dancing and serving and doing whatever we can to earn that God's approval, to get more money, to get more acceptance, to get more joy. Enough is never enough. You are constantly trying harder to please that God, and they're never satisfied. Second thing we notice about false gods is false gods require us to destroy ourselves for them. False gods always push for more. Work harder. Do better. Obtain more. You're not giving me enough attention. And these prophets, they ended up cutting themselves to get Baal's attention. And we do the same thing. We may not physically cut ourselves, but we cut ourselves spiritually. And we cut our, our emotions. We cut our families to get what we think our God wants to have. Cut your family out if it means getting more money. Cut your souls out or compromise your integrity to get more success. But false gods require us to give all we have and destroy ourselves to make them happy and we are never enough we never have enough and we never are we never have enough joy let's keep reading verse number 30 and Elisha said unto all the people come near unto me and all the people came near unto him and he prepared repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down and Elisha took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. Uh, and with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a, the trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid them on the wood and said, fill four bells with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it. And the second time, and he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran about the altar. And he filled the trench also with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elisha the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. After this incredible display of God's power and God's love for his people, Elisha, he gathers together the, the prophets. Remember, there's 400 prophets of Baal, and eight, uh, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the, of the wood. So he gets 850 prophets together and he kills them. Every single one of them, one by one. Must have been exhausting. But that's what he does. And then he tells Ahab, he goes to Ahab after he's killed all the prophets and said, Ahab, you better get home. It's about to rain. And it's going to be a gully washer. It hadn't rained in three and a half years. There's not a cloud in the sky. But he says, Ahab, you better get home. It's about to rain. So he, he, then he goes to pray on top of Mount, Mount Carmel and he sends his servant and says, hey, go tell me when the clouds come. And he starts praying. The servant comes down and says, there's nothing there. So he sends him up six times and the servant comes down and says, there's no clouds there. And the seventh time he goes, go check again. And so he goes and checks again and says, look, there's one little cloud. It's like the size of a man's fist and it's coming out of the ocean. And Elisha says, time to go. 
He gets up, he runs back to Jezreel. The, water, the sky darkens up and the water just pours down and quenches the thirst of the land. So that story, we saw the characteristics of the false gods, that shows us the characteristics of the true God. And here's the first one. The true God accepts us by grace through faith. False gods require constant work and constant effort to please them, to earn their, uh, their, their acceptance. God accepts us by grace through faith, all on the work he did for us and nothing that we could have done. See, the prophets, they dance and they cut themselves to get their God's attention. What did Elisha do? He prayed in faith. He says, God, show them your God. Show them your power. That is the essence of the gospel. See, every other religion, they require effort from its followers. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted, that's why I obey. The true God, there's nothing we can do to please God or to earn his, his acceptance or anything. He freely gives it to us. All we have to do is accept it. Believe on him, that he's done everything that's necessary, and we're accepted by him. Second truth we notice is the true God destroyed himself for us. The prophets of Baal, they had to mutilate themselves to get Baal's attention. Jesus was mutilated for us. He took the wrath of God. He took the punishment we deserved. He was hung on the cross and our sins were placed on him and the full wrath of God was poured out on him and he allowed himself to be destroyed for us. He suffered, he bled, he died so we wouldn't have to and then he rose again three days later proving that he was God and he's done everything that was necessary. Jesus destroyed himself for us. He gave everything for us. Idols require us to give everything for them. So third truth, we're going to see whether there's four, there's a third one. The true God has power. These prophets of, these idols, they, they have no power in our lives. You know, the false god Baal couldn't even light a dry pile of sticks, but the true God engulfed it, ate up the water, ate up the sticks, ate up the sacrifice, burned up the stones. You know how hot the fire's got to do to burn stone? It's got to be really, really hot. And God had the power to do that. False gods and false idols have no power in our life. Your idols will not save you because they can't. Your idols will not bring you joy because they can't. Your idols will not give you security because they can't. Your idols have no power to do anything in your life. Only God has the power to do it. The greatest miracle that we've ever experienced in the world was not this incredible miracle here, but it was the, of God 
doing for us what we could not do, dying in our place and rising again to redeem us to God the Father. He has the power to pay our sin debt and reconcile us with God. We don't have that power, and our idols don't have that power. God is the only one who has the power to do anything for his children. Here's the fourth thing we see about God. The true God satisfies our needs. Baal couldn't satisfy. For three and a half years, it didn't rain in Israel. And Baal was the, the God of nature. He was the God in charge of the weather, and he couldn't stop the famine. He couldn't stop the drought. He couldn't stop the suffering. He, he couldn't do anything. He left the land parched and hurting and unsatisfied. But the true God gave Israel what they needed. He quenched their literal thirst as well as their spiritual thirst. Idols do not satisfy. But they're tricky. They make you think they do. You get a little bit of what you think you deserve and what you think you want and it feels good, but it's never enough, so you got to get more. And that satisfies for a while, but it's never enough, so you got to get more. That's so always having to get more to find satisfaction. True satisfaction only comes from God. God floods our lives with living water of joy and peace and a new life that satisfies us what we need and shows us what we're looking for. Tim Keller said this. He says, Jesus is the only God that if you find him will satisfy you and if you fail him will forgive you. Idols don't satisfy. They leave you thirsty for more of what they cannot give you. And if you fail them, they make you miserable. Look how the story ends in chapter 18, verse 45. <clears throat> and it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and the wind, there was a uh, the, uh, black with clouds and the wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elisha, and he girded up his loins, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So Ahab, he's, he's in his chariot being pulled by a horse, and horses aren't really valuable now, but they were then. So they were pulling him down to Jezreel. He's running real fast, and he's got a head start on Elisha, and it starts to rain, and Elisha tucks up his tunic and starts running to Jezreel, and he outruns Ahab, who's got a head start, and he's on a chariot. Why did God give us that detail? Remember what Elisha said Israel was doing? They were limping along. They weren't accomplishing anything. They were hurting. They were, were ineffective in everything. Elisha's not limping. He's running. He's running so fast, he's outrunning horses to get to where he needs to go. When you follow God completely, you no longer limp along. You run with freedom. And that's what God wants for us. He wants us to be completely sold out to him, living for him, and running with freedom and joy. So this morning as we close, I simply ask you a question. Are you running or are you limping?
Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace. Our church is growing and our ministries are doing big things for Jesus. If you're looking for a way to get plugged in or would like more information about our church and our ministries, you can visit us online at reachingroanoke.com. Thanks so much for listening and have a blessed day.